while the phrase is rooted in Scripture, as we'll see this morning, the idea of being born again became well known in this country starting in the late 1960s. Christian renewal movements like the the Jesus movement or the Jesus people movement in the late 60s seem to use this title, uh, this phrase as a title to distinguish individuals who had experienced a genuine and profound conversion to Christ to distinguish them from those who seemed to be Christian in name only. Christian because of tradition. Christian because of where their membership was at a particular church or maybe their family's name was on a pew in some building. (laughs) To be born again. And by the 1970s, the mainstream media began to talk about this as a born-again movement, the born-again movement. At the same time, former Watergate conspirator Chuck Colson released in 1976 his conversion account entitled Born Again. That same year, Democratic nominee and soon-to-be president Jimmy Carter described himself as born again. And by 1980, all three major presidential candidates stated that they had been born again. So undoubtedly, there are many of you who first became familiar with that phrase because of its increasing use in popular culture. For some... It was a helpful, identifying label. For others, it was a term of disdain. You're not one of those born-again people, are you? (laughs) I've actually had that question, I think, asked to me in the past number of years ago. But as I mentioned at the outset, the phrase is, in fact, a biblical phrase. It's one that first appears in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Why don't we look together at that passage this morning, and let's consider, as we're doing that, let's consider what God wants us to know this morning about this concept of being born again. So, even though we're going to be focusing on chapter 3, verses 1 through 15 this morning, I think it's important that we start with chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Why is that? Because that final little bit of chapter 2 is a kind of hinge passage, right? It's a hinge passage. It's one that connects chapter 2 to chapter 3, right? It ends chapter 2. It concludes chapter 2, but it also introduces chapter 3. We'll see in a moment why that's so important. So look back with me to begin at John 2, verse 23. Now when he, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When? Well, when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. 
Now, with that passage in mind, with that passage in mind, listen to what John writes beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man, we have the, we have the, uh, the setting established, don't we? You know, we're in Jerusalem still, it's the Passover. There was a man of the Pharisees, his name was Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one else can, no one could do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now let's stop there. We'll continue on in just a minute. But let's look at those first few verses together. I want you to notice that like the many, right? The many people, the, the, the crowd maybe, the many mentioned in verse 23 of chapter 2, this Nicodemus had also seen, maybe he's one of the many who had seen Jesus perform miracles. In fact, he's coming to Jesus because of those miracles. Now, to be clear, the only miracle that John has described so far in this gospel, the only miracle that we've heard about is Jesus turning water to wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. But as I've mentioned before, even though John has built his entire book, gospel around seven specific miracles or signs, John nevertheless acknowledges the kind of wonder-working ministry that's described in the other gospels. He almost seems to assume that his readers are already acquainted with either those gospels in their earliest forms or the stories contained in those Gospels uh, that had been handed down, that had been preached and passed down and taught within all of the churches by the time uh, that John was writing his Gospel. So he acknowledges that kind of ministry, the kinds of things Jesus was doing regularly according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Casting out of demons. Healing, up the si- healing of the sick, right? Raising up the lame so that they could walk again. And the list goes on. But look at how this man, Nicodemus, describes, listen to how he presents his spiritual appraisal of Christ. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. That's what he's concluded. That's, the, that's the, what he brings, the message he brings. Now, that's not quite the appraisal of John the Baptist, is it? John declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's not quite the appraisal. Nicodemus' appraisal is not quite the appraisal of Nathaniel, is it? Nathaniel stated, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Chapter 1, verse 49. John the Baptist's quote was from chapter 1, verse 29. 
And Jesus, look at this, Jesus confirms the incompleteness of Nicodemus' profession of faith, if we want to call it that. His profession of faith. Verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying there? I believe he's telling Nicodemus, yes, you've seen miracles. And yes, you've seen there's something special about me. But you have not seen the kingdom of God. You have not seen the kingdom of God. You don't yet have new eyes. And the only way to get those new eyes, Nicodemus, is to be born again. Or we could translate that phrase, born from above. That's another legitimate translation of that phrase. Born from above. So what exactly does Jesus mean when he talks about this idea of being born again? Well, that's precisely what Nicodemus goes on to ask here. He wants to clarify what Jesus is talking about. Look at verse 4 with me, if you would. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And you can almost note, even though, of course, we can't hear what this actually sounded like, and John doesn't comment it on, but you could almost hear the incredulity in Nicodemus's voice as he's saying this, right? Maybe a little mocking. I don't know when you hear this, but he's saying, what? How can, how can someone be born again? How can a, an old man be, be born? Is he going to climb back in his mother's womb and, and reemerge? Is that what you're talking about, Jesus? Jesus answered, verse 5, truly, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Nicodemus, so it is with everyone who is born of the spirits. So when Nicodemus hears born again, he's thinking in these literal terms, isn't he? He finds it puzzling, right? To say the least. But Jesus clarifies for him He says, to be born again is to be, verse 5, born of water and born of the Spirit. You see that? To be born of water and the Spirit. And in verse 6, Jesus repeats that last part. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about a spiritual rebirth, not a physical rebirth. He's talking about a spiritual rebirth. And as a Pharisee, Nicodemus should recognize this language. He should recognize what Jesus is saying here, the language that he's using, the concepts to which he is pointing. Uh, Why should he recognize that? Because it comes from the promise of God given through the prophet Ezekiel, for example. Ezekiel chapter 36 is a great place for us to see this. 
Take a look at this verse. Ezekiel prophesies, I will take you, God speaking through Ezekiel, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. God's not saying I'm going I'm to make it rain, right? He's not talking about physical water. He's talking about, he's giving a vivid image of cleansing Cleansing from impurity. Cleansing from idolatry. And I will give you a new heart. And I will give you a new spirit. A new spirit I will put within you, says the Lord God. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes cause you to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Wow. If that isn't a vivid description of a new birth, right? A new beginning for the people of God. I don't know what it is. Look at that imagery. And and, and notice the two terms that jesus picks up on and uses he grabs that idea of water doesn't he and he grabs the idea of the spirit and he talks about this new birth through the water and through the spirit that is through cleansing god's cleansing work and through the coming of the holy spirit among the people of god this new birth the new birth described here is what gives us not only new eyes but it also gives us new feet What do I mean by that? Well, new feet to walk a new path in the kingdom of God. To enter that narrow gate. The new feet that we need. And notice the one who is acting in Ezekiel 36. Notice the one causing everything to happen. Notice the agency, we might say, in Ezekiel 36. It is God who will do all of these things. It is not conditioned, it doesn't seem like in that verse. It simply simply says, I will do it. I will act. God will act. He will move. He will save. He will give new life. Isn't that what Jesus is saying in verse 8? Isn't that what Jesus is saying in verse 8? Being born again is not a matter of your religious position or ethnic identity or your knowledge or your appraisal of Jesus ministry no 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 it's not even a matter of your own will it is simply a matter of the spirit of god like the wind and the word for spirit is the same word translated wind they mean the same Wind, breath, or spirit. Pneuma, where we get pneumatology from, pneumatics, right? Pneuma, air, spirit. And so Jesus plays with that word and talks about the wind. It's like the wind. How so? The spirit blows wherever it wishes. You can see its effect in transformed lives. But it doesn't work according to human expectations or efforts 
John told us something very similar already in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Take a look. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. He gave that right to those who believed in the Word, become flesh, Jesus. He gave that right. All who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, it's the same point that Jesus is now reminding us of in terms of the work of the Holy Spirit. But, but even though Nicodemus should understand what Jesus is describing here, he doesn't. He doesn't. That's clear in verse 9. Take a look at verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? How can this be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you, now in Greek, this is a switch over to the plural. In English, we don't have a a word for plural you, right? In the South they do. It's called y'all, right? <laughs> y'all. It's an apostrophe. Yeah, yeah, it uses an apostrophe, but you know, if I was preaching in the South today, I might be saying that. He says, right? To bear witness to what we've seen. But y'all do not receive our testimony. Who's he talking about? The Jewish leadership, I think. Remember the ones who confronted him when he went into the temple and drove out the money changers? Drove out the animal vendors who questioned him and what authority do you have to do this? Who do you think you are? Y'all don't receive our testimony. I have told you, y'all, earthly things and you, all of you do not believe. How can all of you believe if I tell all of you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except, that is, no one's been in heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, you may recall that Nicodemus, if you just scan back up to verse 2, he came to Jesus saying what? We know that you are a teacher come from God. Well, guess what? Jesus is going to turn that around in verse 11, right? He says, we speak of what we know. You can say we know, you and your buddies, but we speak of what we know. Now, it is not at all clear who the we is here. I, had, I really have no idea when Jesus uses the word we, who he's talking about here. Uh, is it Jesus and those born of the Spirit from the previous verse? Is it Jesus and the Spirit? Is it Jesus and the Father? I don't know. I'm not sure that we can determine that from the context. But... It doesn't matter. The point is clear. The point here is clear. In spite of what Nicodemus has claimed under the cover of darkness, by the way, the Jewish leaders have not accepted Jesus' testimony. They have not recognized who Jesus is. But they should. They should receive His testimony. Why? Because only the Word who has been in heaven in the Father's presence, who has been in the Father's counsel, that Word 
who has subsequently descended and become flesh. That word bears truthful testimony. That word made flesh bears witness to what we need to know. And he's the only one who can do so. Now, Nicodemus certainly wouldn't understand heavenly revelation. We know that because he cannot even understand what Jesus is saying about things that concern earthly life right now. Like, for example, being born again. He doesn't even understand that. He can't even understand the concept, let alone tie it to the Old Testament and the promises of the prophets of a spiritual rebirth for the people of God that God would bring about. You see, Nicodemus needs not only new eyes and new feet, he also needs new ears. New ears to truly hear and receive the testimony, the unique testimony of Jesus Christ. So, let's stop and consider, take a look back and think about what we've seen this morning. What have we learned about this idea of being born again? Take a look here at the screen. I'll give you a reminder real, real quickly. What have we learned about being born again? Number one, we've learned that it is a spiritual birth. Number two, we've learned that it is necessary to recognize, receive, and enter the kingdom of God. And number three, it is a work of the Spirit. Not of you, not of me. It is a work of the Spirit of God. Or, to put that last point differently, as was the case on the day that you were conceived, as was the case on the day that you were born, you cannot birth yourself. I think we all know this. (laughs) You cannot birth yourself. Now think about that statement. Even though this passage is commonly misrepresented and misunderstood, Jesus is not calling Nicodemus here to be born again. That's not what he's doing. He is not calling Nicodemus to be born again since that isn't something Nicodemus can do through his own efforts. Even accepting that the miracles of Jesus are of God will not cause one to be born again. Even accepting that Jesus is a teacher from God will not cause one to be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Writer Matthew Barrett comments on these same ideas. He says this, Unfortunately, even the most well-meaning Christians today can get the miracle backwards. We think the new birth is something we must do. But that misses the miracle of it all. It also misses the meaning of the metaphor. (laughs) Birth is something that happens to us, not something we accomplish. How much more so with matters of the heart, or we could say matters of the spirit, Spiritual life. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that, that you cannot birth yourself? 
that the miracle was one uh, that God did? Do you believe that you need those new eyes, new feet, and new ears? That the only way to get them is to be born of the Spirit? Do you believe that such a rebirth is ultimately not up to you? If you do, then please consider three ideas for living this truth out. Three ideas for living this truth out. First of all, take a look. First of all, the new birth should inspire gratitude and worship. The new birth should inspire gratitude and worship. If you cannot birth yourself, then what does that mean? It means someone else did. Someone else did. And we know that someone was God through His Spirit. As Jesus would later declare, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father, John 6.65. Paul would express, I don't think I have these verses up there, so <laughs> um, you take a note of this. I don't have the verses on the screen. I apologize for that, but these are great verses. John 6.65. Paul is going to express that same idea, the same truth in this way. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. You see, it's by grace you've been saved. By grace. That's a description of new birth. And Peter is the clearest on this. The Apostle Peter, in no uncertain terms, says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why bless, him? Why bless God? According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, as we just sang about, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1.3 Wow, brothers and sisters, think about that fact. At one time, in terms of spiritual existence, you were not there. You were dead. You were gone. There was nothing. And God came. Heavenly conception, spiritual rebirth took place and you were living. You were alive. You existed on the plane of fellowship with God, communion with God, belonging to God, adopted by God. You were a child of God. Why? Because God willed it to be. Because God purposed it. If you have not done so already today, give thanks to God for your new birth. Jump in the chat box. Give thanks to God there for your new birth. Praise Him for His grace. Praise Him today for His acceptance. Praise Him for His adoption, for His power, for His purpose at work in your life. As we heard earlier, the, the Israelite, the Hebrew who would talk about God's redemption from Israel and say, the Lord saved me. He brought me out of Egypt. My son, we have to be able to say the same thing. 
Christ died for me. He loved me. He gave himself up for me. He broke the bonds of death for me that I might live. Praise him even now. Praise him and worship him. And then ask yourself, what can I do to fan that practice of praise into a flame that's a daily habit? How do I do that each day instead of simply being caught up in the busyness of it all? Brothers and sisters, we need to remember and remind each other the fact that when we stand before Jesus, as 2 Corinthians 5 talks about, and we talk about our life of worship and praise and thanksgiving, Jesus will not accept that your life was busy. He will not accept that you had too much going on at work. That there were shows that you had to catch up on. Right? He won't, he won't accept your excuses for not stopping and giving Him thanks. For worshiping Him. For praising Him. For what He deserves. No, He understands that we will not do so perfectly. But when we try to rationalize or justify these things, because we are busy people, because we have too much happening, because we have too many stressful things in our life. Brothers and sisters, it's the stressful things, it's the hard times that should drive us to praise as well. Because God has seen and will see us through those times. Because through those difficulties, God is revealing His excellencies. He's driving us from that place of desperate need back to His sufficiency of grace through Christ. You see, our God deserves worship, praise, thanksgiving, adoration every single moment of every single day. And you can do that with your mouth. You can do that with your song. You can do that in the quietness of your heart. And you can do that by living the kind of life that glorifies Him. Worshipping Him by the way that you talk to others and talk about others. Worshipping Him by showing Him what is a priority to you. The things of this world, the things of the 24-hour news cycle, or the things of the kingdom of God. The work of God in this world. We can worship Him in that way. And we should because He has caused us to be born again. You cannot birth yourself. Number two, the new birth should inspire daily prayer for life in the Spirit's newness. Even when you are genuinely born again, brothers and sisters, it is very very easy to slip back into that Nicodemus mindset. It is very, very easy to slip back into that mindset. What is that mindset? It's that religious mentality that even though it's a religious mentality, it is one that is sadly ignorant of and insensitive to true spiritual, the true spiritual nature of God's work in and among us. Right? It's the mindset that turns one's faith into a formula that rests simply on tradition rather than the fact that there is a living God active at work inside of you. And that the only way that His will is accomplished is through spiritual means. 
right? Spiritual fruit, not simply you doing religious things or going through a routine and saying, hey, we've got this all covered. As if Nicodemus were to walk up to Jesus and say, Jesus, I thought you might want to know that me and the bros of the Sanhedrin, guess what? We know that you're from God. As if Jesus were to say, oh, oh, thank you. Wow. Thank you. I'm glad you validated my ministry in that way. I didn't know what to do. I was paralyzed until you came and told me and gave me that validation. No. No, that's not what's happening here, is it? Jesus is confronting that Nicodemus mindset. We are daily tempted to that mindset, brothers and sisters. Paul warned Timothy about that mindset, didn't he? When he talked about those having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Are you living a powerless Christian life? Are you living one that's powered by your own flesh? By your own efforts? By your own schemes and agendas? By your own formulas that make it comfortable for you to say, I'm living the Christian life. One that's not pushed to the edge and pushed to the brink. Guess what, friends? That place on the edge and that place on the brink, that's the place of faith, isn't it? If you do not step out... How, do you, how will you demonstrate faith? Uh, where will the call to faith be if you are not stepping out beyond that religious mentality? Radical faith. Our persistent prayer should be, Father, as I have been born of this Spirit, so let me live. Will you pray that this week? Father, as I have been born of the Spirit, so let me live. Right? Live by the Spirit. To live with new eyes. To live with new feet. To live with new ears as You've given me as Your new creation, Father. If you cannot birth yourself, guess what? You cannot grow yourself either. If you cannot birth yourself, you cannot grow yourself either. But you can pray. You can pray and you can receive the food that comes through God's means of grace, can't you? And guess what? When you do so, God causes the growth. God brings about the maturity, the growth. Finally, number three, in terms of living this out, number three, the new birth should inspire examination of your own profession of faith. What motivated Nicodemus to come to Jesus at all? It really isn't clear. It's not clear why he's coming to Jesus. But it's important to note that this is not a rebuke of Nicodemus. This is not a rebuke. And yet, Jesus desperately wants him to understand that something is missing. That truly coming to Christ and truly seeing Christ requires something far more revolutionary than Nicodemus has in mind. And maybe that's what God wants you to understand this morning. That something's missing in your life. That something's missing in terms of your confession. Maybe like Nicodemus, you also have religious credentials. Maybe, like Nicodemus, you've also 
affirmed Jesus in some way. But maybe if you're completely honest with yourself, you know even now God is showing you that you are not born again. Friend, you would not be the first to be saved in church. You would not be the first to recognize that your Christian faith has been a cultural phenomenon, a family phenomenon, a coping mechanism that you needed at a particular point in your life and you like the people and you like the music and you like some of the moral instruction but you don't love Jesus. You don't love Him with all your heart. You don't love Him from the center of your being because you can't Because you're not new. You haven't been born again. That's not a discouraging truth. That's an encouraging truth because it now calls you to seek. It clarifies your vision. It helps you understand what you desperately need. That you need to be born again. If that's the case with you this morning, with some of you, Let me direct you to verses 14 and 15. Let's take a look at those together. Verses 14 and 15. John chapter 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Uh, Jesus knows who he's talking to. He knows that Nicodemus knows this story very well. He's a teacher in Israel. He knows this story. And so he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, though the Son of Man has descended from heaven, He will once again be lifted up. And we're going to see this over and over again in the Gospel of John. He's descended, but He's going to be lifted up. He is going to be lifted up again. And when He is, look to Him. Look to Him with faith. What does that mean? It means just as the Israelites did when they were dying from those snake bites with which God had judged them in Numbers chapter 21. We should look with eyes of faith. The lesson there was simple in Numbers 21. It was simple. And it's the same lesson today. Look and live. Look and live. Look and live. If Nicodemus, if you, my friend, will look to the cross upon which Jesus, the Son of Man, was lifted up, you will have eternal life. Looking with eyes of faith. You see, Jesus is not telling Nicodemus to be born again, but He is calling him to believe. He is calling him to faith. Brothers, sisters, friends, we will meet Nicodemus again in this book. 
We will meet him again, and John will give us glimpses of what God was doing in this man's life. But this morning, please ask yourself, what is God doing in me? What is God doing in me? Let us look to the cross. Amen? Let us look to the cross. Let us look to the one who took our place there. To the one who died for us there. For our sins. The one who perfectly paid the price there. The one who demonstrated his amazing love there. You can be born to new life because Jesus died for your old one. Would you take that to heart, please? You can be born to new life because Jesus died for your old one. So let us look and live. Let us look and live. Then let us give thanks let us worship, let us pray, let us live with new eyes, with new feet, with new ears. Why? That we might see Christ, that we might go for Christ as we listen to His Word. Amen? Brothers and sisters, friends, look and live. That's God's Word for all of us from the mouth of Jesus in verses 14 and 15. Let me pray for you as I also pray for myself that I would look and live. That you would look and live as we look to the cross, as we look to the One who hung there for us, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man and Son of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly